I'm going to read to you from the Word of God, and I'm going to read tonight, for I hope what is obvious reasons, from Tyndale's New Testament, translated by William Tyndale, and from, although you wouldn't tell it from the reading, a modern spelling edition of the 1534 translation. Uh, and I'm going to read a portion of scripture from Paul the Apostle's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. Though I spake with the tongues of men and angels, and yet had no love, I were even a sounding brass or as a tinkling cymbal. And though I could prophesy and understand all secrets and all knowledge, yea, if I had all faith so that I could move mountains out of their places and yet had no love, I were nothing. And though I bestowed all my goods to feed the poor, and though I gave my body even that I burned and yet had no love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long and is courteous. Love envieth not. Love doth not frowardly, swelleth not, dealeth not dishonestly, seeketh not her own, is not provoked to anger, thinketh not evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, suffereth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth in all things. And though that prophesyings fail, or tongues shall cease, or knowledge vanish away, yet love falleth never away. For our knowledge is imperfect, and our prophesying is imperfect. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is imperfect shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I imagined as a child. But as soon as I was a man, I put away childishness. Now we see in a glass, even in a dark speaking. But then shall we see face to face. Now I know imperfectly. But then shall I know even as I am known. Now abideth faith, hope and love. Even these three. But the chief of these is love. May God bless to us this reading from his word and to his name be praise and glory. Amen. Well, I'm really not sure how to follow that, uh, but I do want to take the opportunity of saying what a very real privilege it is for me to be here speaking at any meeting under the auspices of the Christian Institute. Uh, I personally value the work of the Institute enormously. I have supported its work, prayed for its work, followed its work over the years, and I'm wholly behind in it. If I may just extend that for a moment, and just uh, for a moment represent the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. I'm on the uh, council of the FIEC. We are a fellowship of some 480 
uh, independent evangelical churches across the country. Uh, and we, as a fellowship of churches, warmly appreciate the work of the Institute, its contribution, its uh, valuable research, uh, strengthening our hands. And although we live in days of a terrible moral slide, yet together we can be stronger with the work of the Institute. So I, I want to say that for me it's a special privilege to be here uh, under the auspices of the Institute. And then, if I may just take one other opportunity, and that is to mention um, a couple of books that I've brought with me that have actually nothing to do with my subject this evening, only very indirectly. You can get a connection anywhere if you try, but uh, I haven't really tried with this. Some of you will know that Day One Publications began a series recently of a series of travel guides uh, on great uh, Christians of the past. The first was John Bunyan. And what they are in a relatively short biographical introduction to the character, 23,000 words, which may sound a lot, but I can assure you is a very short biography, in the context of the places you can go and see that will actually locate the person in their historical context. I often talk about the ambience of history You'll see that in just a moment because I believe that we must always, when we're looking at any character, see them in the context of the day in which they lived and get some color behind them. Uh, the first was John Bunyan. Uh, I'm editing this series, and that's why I have a particular interest in it. Uh, this was written by John Pestel, and uh, that was published in April. The second, and this is of particular significance for us this evening, is on Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and the significance is that this only came into the publisher from the printer on Friday and is actually being launched at a meeting in Colchester tonight. So there's nobody else in the country that's got this apart from them and you. Uh, and I wasn't able to bring too many up with me, uh, but uh, these books normally retail at 9.99. Tonight, you can have them for £8 each, or you may have two for £15, and even my poor mess seems to imply that that gets better each time. Uh, so there are just a few copies here. Now, if these sell out, they're on a table separate to the bookstall. If these sell out, then I know the bookstall will be very happy to take orders uh, and fulfill those orders as soon as possible. So these are available for you. We do have a couple of books. I, I, now, I'll leave that to question time, I think, because... Uh, we, you had a lovely reading just now, and if I may say, without being patronizing, and I don't mean it that way, beautifully read, since you hadn't had time to go through it beforehand, uh, that was a lovely reading of Tyndale. And uh, I hope you, you, you got something of the flavor of the beauty of this man's ability to translate. He was a fine translator, as we shall see. Now, we do have uh, a PowerPoint uh, presentation this evening, so I'm going to have pictures following me. Unfortunately, those of you in the wings are not going to be able to see it very well, and I apologize for that. Um, but um, this is more of a bird table than a lectern, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry, it's really lovely. <laughs> so I do apologize. Those of you will not be able to see the pictures, but. Uh, there was a day when we never had all these things anyway, so let's pretend if we can't see it, we're in that day right now. Uh, there will be time for questions, so I promise you that, and uh, th that's very important. So if you have questions, you can store them up, uh, and if I haven't answered them along the way, I, I may not be able to answer them either at the end. In the year 1523, London could number its population by the thousands, 
its vices by the hundreds, and its religious houses by the scores. It, uh, the city was surrounded by a huge wall, broken in seven or eight places by massive gates. They were at Aldgate, Bishopsgate, Cripplegate, Aldersgate, Newgate, Ludgate, and Bridgegate, mainly only known now, now as London Underground stations. On the south of the city, of course, lay the grim fortress of the tower and the ugly stone bridge that provided the only crossing of the River Thames from troublesome Kent. All the main streets led down to the city market, known as the Cheap. To move about anywhere, the traveller passed those great religious houses uh, that, uh, that swallowed the nation's resources uh, and uh, held it in superstition, ignorance and fear. The Black Friars, the Grey Friars, the Carthusians, the White Friars, the Augustian Friars, the Crossed Friars, the Cistercians, the, the Priories, and the Nunneries. And the monks at Westminster Abbey busied themselves tending their lettuces in the large convent garden. Beyond the wall lay fields, meadows, and deep woods. Islington, if you know it, even two and a half centuries later was called the prettiest village in England. You should see it now. But in 1523, London was seething with discontent. Henry VIII had been on the throne for 14 years, and his political apprenticeship was over. He was demanding money for a new war with France. It was called by Cardinal Wolsey an amicable loan. But no Englishman submits to 18% tax amicably and they weren't going to do so. Parliament was asserting itself. The bishops, as always, were worried and reactionary, and Pope Clement VII was watching over it all very suspiciously. He had, hadn't been paying his rent by the English monarch for quite some years now. It was uh, some 1,000 marks a year. That's around 600 pounds, which was a lot of money then. Pope Clement was tall, good-looking, and thoroughly incompetent. He lost too many wars. Four years later, Rome was sacked by German troops, and twice he was held prisoner by his own faithful Catholic subjects. His predecessor, Adrian, had been far too pious for the job and had died within 12 months. Leo X, before Adrian, was typical of the 16th century popes. He was a monk at seven, a cardinal at 14, uh, a shrewd politician because he was dishonest to all, and the church was barely religious. Leo sold indulgences by the thousands, created new offices and sold them to the highest bidder, threw lavish parties that even out exceeded those of Henry and Wolsey themselves, and interestingly, Ludwig Pasteur, the Catholic historian, says rather quaintly, certainly he was no unbeliever, even though he was not a man of deep interior religion. Erasmus and Dean Collett, Pius Collett and Erasmus, the great Dutch scholar, both of them railed against the state of the priesthood. It wasn't evangelicals that was do it, doing it. It was loyal churchmen that were doing it. Listen to Erasmus. Theology itself I reverence and always have reverenced, he wrote. I am speaking merely of the theologistrics of our time, 
whose brains are the rottenest, intellects the dullest, doctrines the thorniest, manners the brutalest, life the foulest, speech the spitefulest, hearts the blackest that I have ever encountered in the world. No word of Christ is heard in the pulpits, he went on. I doubt whether in the whole history of Christianity the heads of the church have been so grossly worldly as at the present time. And that was the church's great theologian. Dean Collett, the pious dean of St. Paul's, cried out, O priests, O priesthood, O detestable impiety of those miserable priests of whom this age of ours contains a great multitude who fear not to rush from the bosom of some foul harlot into the temple of the church, to the altar of Christ, to the mysteries of God, abandoned creatures on whom the vengeance of God will one day fall the heavier, the more shamelessly they have intruded themselves into the divine office. It was the age of relics. Wittenberg, Luther's city in Saxony, though through no fault of Luther, was actually known as a relic city. It had 17,000 relics, part of the rock on which Jesus wept, part of the gown and milk from Mary's breasts. It's part of the burning bush, if you can work that one out. <laughs> 35 pieces of the cross, some hair of Christ, his coat and girdle, and even a skeleton of one of the babes massacred in Bethlehem. When Erasmus was at Canterbury, he balked at the fact that he had, was expected to kiss the skulls, jawbones, arms and legs of the departed saints, even, he said, with flesh still hanging from them. It was the age of indulgences, free pardons at an exorbitant price, and that, of course, for Martin Luther, was the last straw. Morton, Collett, Erasmus... Even the great Chancellor Sir Thomas More, whom we'll hear more of in a moment, if you'll pardon the pun, men of integrity and unquestioning loyalty to the church at Rome, they all cried out against the abuses of the church. But they were wholly ineffective, and for two reasons. One, they did not go to the cause. The cause was ignorance of God's word and the gospel by the Constitutions of Oxford of 1401 through to 1409, you were able to read the English Bible on pain of death. And the only English Bible around, of course, was John Wycliffe's, and you were not allowed to do so. And secondly, they failed because they feared the consequences. I admire Erasmus for putting it so beautifully, honestly. I follow the Pope and Emperor when they do well, he wrote, because it is pious to do so. I bear their bad decisions because it is safe to do so. In 1523, a young priest walked into London. He had letters on him for, of introductions to Sir Harry Guilford. He hoped these would determine the future course of his life, and they did, but a ver in a very unexpected way. William Tyndale was born possibly in 1494, 110 years after the death of, William, of John Wycliffe, and probably near Slimbridge in Gloucestershire. That was appropriately vague for a man who spent most of his life eluding secret agents. His name implies, Tyndale, that his family originated from the Valley of the Tyne. You should all be interested to know. We had a debate over... Uh, dinner this evening as to whether he spoke with a West Country accent 
or a Tyneside accent. And there is little bits of evidence either way, but I'm not going to go into that now. He took on the name Hutchins or Hitchins or Hutchins. It was a delightful age in which there was no correct spelling, and therefore his name is spelt in a number of different ways. And why the family moved south from the Vale of the Tyne, no one quite knows, and it's a possible guess that the family moved during the Wars of the Roses, either to escape the losing side or to be on the winning side, as the case may be. He went in 1513 to Oxford, where he studied for a master's degree, which he gained by 1518, and swore, I quote, to hold none opinions condemned by the church. At that stage, he had not studied theology. For his master's degree, he would have gone through the usual procedure. According to Erasmus, the scholastic teachers used their time in debating such vitally important issues as can God produce an infinite in all directions? Could he have made the world better than it is? Can he create a universal that has no particulars? Can he make a thing not to have been done that has been done? Can he make a harlot into a virgin? Can the Pope command angels? Is the Pope more merciful than Christ? and so on, and so on, with hundreds of such questions seriously debated by the theologians. Over speculations like these, concluded Erasmus, theologians professing to teach Christianity have been squandering their lives. This was the useless kind of theology to which Tyndale was exposed at Oxford, the realists, the nominalists, the Thomists, the Albertists, the Occamists, the Scottists. They were all so learned that an apostle would have no chance with them in argument. Such vainglory made Erasmus scholastically sick. But it was the age of the Renaissance. Learning, art, discovery. Michelangelo, Raphael, Columbus, Cabot. Erasmus was at Oxford, and then in 1511 he moved to Cambridge, where, of course, he gave us the great work of the Greek New Testament published in 1516. When Constantinople fell to the armies of his, the Islamic Jihad in 1453, scholars fled to the West with priceless manuscripts tucked under their arms. And among them, of course, were the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And he gave us this most valuable thing in 1516, the first brought together New Testament in Greek complete in the Western world. His reward for that was to be accused of heresy. Everything you didn't agree with in the 16th century was heresy. Uh, and he faced soaring inflation in England, suffered excruciating from the gallstones. The damp air of Cambridge did him no good, and he hated the wine. Otherwise, he got on pretty well. <laughs> William Tyndale, interestingly and significantly, transferred probably around this time to Cambridge. His mind was changing he was meeting with other significant names. Men like Gardner, Ridley, Bilney, Latimer, Cranmer, Barnes, Coverdale, Frith, Parker, Grendel, Whitgift, and of course Tyndale himself. And of those na 12, nine met a martyr's death. And over their small beer at the White Horse Inn, they were discussing Erasmus's New Testament. They were concerned to come to an understanding of the truth. Their minds were being changed by the word of God. In 1521,
Tyndale went to Little Sodbury Manor in Gloucestershire, the home of Sir John and Lady Walsh. He remained there for two years as tutor to their two boys. During that time, he was preaching in Bristol with a population of 6,000, one of the top five of London, York, Coventry, and Norwich. And in a little garret room, he could look over the countryside of Gloucestershire, and he was doing one major work. He was beginning his translation of that Greek New Testament into English. Now, the great hall in Little Sudbury Manor, which is very little changed from the time Tyndale was there, except the fireplaces on another wall. During that time, the big table, the grand table in any manor house, was always a place not only for meals, but also for the newspaper to be read, the television to be turned on, the radio to be avidly listened to. In other words, it was the place where all the gossip met its meeting point. And the only news that would come would be when wandering friars came in and they would bring the news of the big world outside. This little Sodbury Manor was a small manor house. And the gossip, gossip there was plenty of it in 1521-22. Preparations for war with France, there always were. The execution of the great Duke of Buckingham. If Henry could take his head off his shoulders then nobody was safe. The amicable, or should we say despicable, loan by Cardin of Cardinal Wolsey with its 18% tax. The award that Henry has recently got in 1521 by Pope Leo, of all people, for writing a tract against Luther, and for that he was given the honorary title Defender of the Faith. And as you know, our royalty have had that title ever since. It's quite likely Henry wrote very little of it because he was incapable of doing such a thing, but nevertheless he got the benefit. And of course, Clement VII appointed in 1522. And then the court gossip of Queen, Anne, Queen Catherine and Anne Boleyn. But it was at one of these debating times that Tyndale found himself opposite a friar who was constantly defending the Pope's action. But this annoying little priest on the other side of the table called William Tyndale kept quoting from the New Testament. And in exasperation, the priest actually said, we were better be without God's laws than without the Pope's. To which Tyndale responded in those immortal words, if God spare my life, ere many years I will cause a boy that drives a plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. The influences were the discussions he had in the White Horse Inn at Cambridge around the Word of God, the New Testament in Greek. An old doctor near Bristol who encouraged him to go for it, whatever the cost. Erasmus had penned these words into the front of his Greek New Testament of 1516, which shows that they were buzzing already in the mind of Tyndale. I vehemently dissent from those who are unwilling that the sacred scriptures translated into the vulgar, that means common tongue, should be read by private persons. I, this is Erasmus, I wish that the husbandman may sing parts of them at his plough, that the weaver may warble them at his shuttle, that the traveller may with their narratives beguile the weariness of the way. And those words actually circulated with the blessing of the Pope. But as I said earlier, in England... According to the Convocations of Oxford, Oxford of 1407 to 9, 
Anyone who read the Bible was forbade to do so on pain of death. Even a sentence in Scripture was denied in English. England was well behind the continent in this. And so he came to London. William Tyndale stayed with Humphrey Monmouth, a scripture man, as he said, and it was rather lovely because Humphrey Monmouth heard him preach the word in London, and uh, he said, I smelt the gospel. They had contact with the German merchants at the steel yard, and Luther's German translation of the New Testament was coming in in 1522, and Tyndale could read German. John Frith he met up with, a brilliant mathematician from King's College, Cambridge, and they, the lines of the Reformation were being drawn. Scripture alone, the authority of God's word, through faith alone, salvation by Christ alone. He had an interview with Bishop Tunstall, who was, had no real interest in Scripture. Tyndale referred to him as a still Saturn. In 1523, he realized he had no future in England if ever he was to translate the Bible, and he fled to the continent, never to see his homeland again. We know he went to Hamburg, and then where? A copy of the University Register at Wittenberg for 20, uh, the May the 27th, 1524, has a very interesting entry. The problem was the reformers wound up in uh, Wittenberg uh, and uh, signed the visitor's book. But they nearly always, to cover their tracks, signed their names with some pseudonym. So we may not be surprised to find Guillermos Doltisi ex Anglia written in the visitor's book. Normally, Melanchthon, one of Luther's right-hand men, uh, blew the gaff by going down the book and writing their proper names in, which was not the intention. But he didn't on this occasion. And if, of course, you turn the two syllables of Doltisi round the other way and perhaps assume that that last CI could easily have been written for an N, you have William Tyndale from England. Who knows? The only problem is it's doubtful that he ever met Luther because at that time Luther was out of town. And thus began 11 years of hide-and-seek. By April 1525, William Tyndale was back in Hamburg and then he moved to Cologne. Late in 1525, he published a quarto edition of his New Testament. It began to come off the presses of Peter Quintal. Speed was essential. Cologne was the center of printing. Caxton had been here before he set up his printing press outside Westminster Abbey uh, just after 1471. Unfortunately, John Cocleus a bitter opponent of the reformers, was using the same printer. And Tyndale was halfway through Mark's gospel when Cocleus informed the Cologne senator, Hermann Rink, of what was happening. Edward Lee, the king's new ambassador to Spain, was passing through Cologne at this time by coincidence, and he heard a New Testament in English was being printed in Cologne, and he wrote at once to Henry. I need not advertise your grace, what infection and danger may ensue, ensue hereby if it be not withstanded. And just in case his grace had forgotten, Edward Lee presumed to remind the king that, quote, all our forefathers, governors of the Church of England, hath with all diligence forbade and eschewed publication of English Bibles. 
And as a final encouragement, now, sir, as God hath endued your grace with Christian courage to set forth a standard against these Philistines and to vanquish them, so I doubt not but that he will assist your grace to prosecute and perform the same, that is to undertread them that they shall not now lift up their heads, which they endeavor now by means of English Bibles. Tyndale gathered up his printed sheets and by night fled up the, up the Rhine to Worms, just four years after Luther's great debate in that city. And he published here, ever resourceful, always improving on the work he had done before. He published not now this large edition, this octavo edition, but a small quarto edition. I'm very cross with myself because I have a facsimile edition of this and I meant to bring it and I forgot to. Uh, so there is a little display of some things you can see at the far end of the hall adjoining, but I'm afraid this is not among them. It was, for the time, incredibly forward-thinking. It was a pocket size. Now, you wouldn't consider it a pocket size, but it's like this and about that thick, and nothing had been printed in terms of a Bible that small before. 1526 was a bad year for Europe. Solomon the Magnificent was bringing his... A terrible Islamic army across Europe and threatening the doors of Europe once again. And, as usual, it was a terrible harvest in England. The German steelyard merchants came to the rescue and they offered to bring the king in as much wheat and cloth as he required. And hidden and, and smuggled in among them were copies of Tyndale's 1526 New Testament. Until a year back, a couple of years back, only one known complete copy of the 1526 uh, Bible was available and known. It was actually lodged for many years in the Baptist College in Bristol, and while it was there, I had the privilege of actually going down there and uh, picking it up and handling it and studying it. Little did I know that in 1994, the British Library would purchase it from the college for just over one million pounds and now you can't get nearer than a glass case to it. It must have been a bit gutting for them because in 1997 a Stuttgart copy was found as well. Whether that's devalued it, I don't know. How many more have yet to come to light? Who knows? A copy was, is at Bristol, and uh, you could find it, it isn't now, but you could find it there at one shilling and eightpence unbound, two shillings and eightpence, around 13p bound. One week's wages for a laborer. They were smuggled back into England and they were hidden in the cellars by the River Thames by the old London Bridge. Apprentices, tailors, saddlers, weavers, bricklayers, fishmongers, anybody who could get hold of it would get hold of it whether they could read or not and they would find somebody who could read who would read it to them. People were known to barter a load of hay for a New Testament and ironically where they were found more than anywhere were as especially at Cardinal Woolsey's pride and joy, his new Cardinal's College at Oxford. What kind of book was it? This is a, photocop a photograph of the 1526 
that thou come with a pure mind, and as the scripture saith, with a single eye unto the words of health and of eternal life, by the which, if we repent and believe them, we are born anew, created afresh, and enjoy the fruits of the blood of Christ. Then Tyndale urged his readers to notice the plain and clear parts of Scripture and to be careful in the hard places not to add anything contrary to the plain places. Now there's a wise method of hermeneutics of understanding the Bible. Notice also, he continued, the difference between the law and the gospel. The one accepteth, asks, and requireth. The other pardoneth and forgiveth. And then after briefly urging his readers to repent and believe the gospel, he's always evangelistic, this man, uh, Tyndale turned his attention to them that are learned in Christianity. If his language offends them, he requests pardon. But he reminds them that he had no one to copy and no one from the past to help him with his English. It was therefore open to future revision. Count it, he said, as a thing not having his full shape. And such a revision, the translator promised to undertake as soon as possible. Now, Tyndale, being no mistake, was well equipped to translate. He knew Greek thoroughly, and Greek scholars will recognize the fact, and I'm not one, but Greek scholars will recognize the fact and do that he translated the New Testament with the great ability of a man who was a master of his trade. He knew Latin thoroughly, Italian, Spanish, French, and German. But what is more to the point? He became a master of Hebrew. We have no idea how he learned Hebrew. He was probably the only man in this country who could speak and least of all translate Hebrew at that time. And even the pious Dean Collett gave up learning Greek because he found it too hard. And this man studied Hebrew and began translating the Hebrew Old Testament. He was the first one to give us a translation from the Greek and the first one to use the printing press. He was a man always seizing the opportunity that would spread the gospel faster and further. For his helps, he had the Erasmus Greek text of 1516, the Latin Vulgate, of course, which uh, was written in the 4th century, translated uh, into Latin in the 4th century, and was, and strictly speaking, still is, the only translation of the Bible that has the imprimatur of the Roman Catholic Church upon it, and he had Luther's 1522 New Testament in, in German. There is actually no firm evidence that he ever possessed Wycliffe's Bible. Bishop Westcott, a 19th century New Testament scholar, but no evangelical, said he deals with the text as one who passed a scholar's judgment upon every fragment of the work unbiased by any predecessor. Now he had some beautiful translations. I haven't time to really give you much of a flavor of that. But he was very concerned in his translations to avoid words that would have carried with them the common Catholic meaning of words. So the word penance he translated by repentance. He didn't use the word charity, but the word love, as you heard in that reading. And it's to the shame of the King James authorized version of 1611 that they reintroduced that word, that awful word charity, which meant something completely different than the beautiful word love. He didn't use the word confession because that had an obvious ring about it, but the word acknowledge your sin. He didn't use the word grace, which was something that was dispensed by the church, but used the word favor. He certainly didn't use the word priest, 
because he could hardly think of a more unbiblical way of referring to anybody who led Christian churches. But he used the word senior and then in 1534 changed it to the word elder. And he didn't use the word church but the word congregation. And it was the authorized version that brought it back to the word church. Little wonder that the reformers and the Puritans hated the authorized version which is uh, not very much to some people's liking, I know, but it's a fact of history because they much preferred their own Bible, which at that time was the Geneva Bible. And do remember this, the Bible of Queen Elizabeth and Bible of Shakespeare uh, wasn't the authorized version, it was the Geneva Bible. And the Bible of the Pilgrim Fathers was the Geneva Bible. And all of these translations in the New Testament were a full 90% William Tyndale. Sadly, as I say, there were, many of these were later changed back. Because it was this delightful age where there was no spelling, uh, there are three renderings of the word imperfect in the same paragraph. I've discovered seven different ways of spelling the word it, I-T. Um, and don't spend the rest of the time working out in your mind how many times you could spell the word I-T. Uh, three times in Matthew 5, verses 34 and 35. But having said that, a lot of Tyndale's spellings eventually fixed the spelling of Eng English. Many of his phrases, of course, did exactly the same. His style was rich and varied and earthy. Sometimes he overplayed this variety and sacrificed accuracy for it because he was always concerned to make the Bible speak to the modern man. Remember, he had the plowboy in man, not them that are learned in theology, but the man who doesn't read much and is going to be listening to somebody else reading it to him. So he renders Romans 13:7, give to every man therefore his duty, tribute to whom tribute belongeth, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear belongeth, and honor to whom honor pertaineth. And the words belongeth, due, belongeth, and pertaineth translate the same Greek word. But it would have been boring, he felt, to translate it the same way, so he brought three different words in to serve purpose. One Greek word covers them all. Similarly, in Matthew 24, verse 34, this generation shall not pass till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth may perish, but my word shall abide. And one word is translated by three different words there. Many phrases remained in our English language. Born the burden and heat of the day, straight out of William Tyndale. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, straight out of Tyndale. For in him we live and move and have our being. And many, many passages from his 1526 and later 1534 revi revision ring familiarly in the ears of those who are acquainted with the King James authorized version of 1611. Not with eye service as men pleasers, Colossians 3.22, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Or 2 Peter 1.19, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. It was he who introduced that paraphrase that the authorized version kept in from the Greek, two Greek words, meganoita, which really means it can't be, but that wasn't strong enough for him, so he introduced the paraphrase, God forbid. Now, if that had been introduced in any modern translation, it would have been harangued by the critics, you can be sure. But if it was from Tyndale, and then it got into the authorized version, it's okay, isn't it? God forbid. 90%... A full 90% of the New Testament of the authorized version is straight out of William Tyndale. And 50% of the Old Testament. Why only 50%? Because he was martyred before he finished his work. Let me just read 
We've had one reading. Let me give you another little snippet of a passage you're very familiar with. This is uh, Tyndale in 1526. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for the intent that none that believeth in him should perish, but should have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him shall not be condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he believeth not in the name of the only Son of God. But what about its reception? Well, there were pirate editions, as you can imagine. No copyright laws in those days. And therefore, people would get hold of anything that would sell. And so there were many pirate editions of his New Testament. The common people, the university students, they were getting it as much as they could. But not, of course, the clerics. Tunstall, Bishop of London, on the 24th of October, 1526, wrote to his archdeacons, complaining of the holy gospel of God in the common tongue, which was intermingled with certain articles of heretical depravity and pernicious erroneous opinions, pestilous, scandalous, and seductive of simple minds, of which translation many books containing the pestilent and pernicious poison in the vulgar tongue has been dispersed in great numbers throughout our diocese, which truly, unless it be speedily foreseen, will without doubt infect and contaminate the flock committed to us with the pestilent poison and the deadly disease of heretical depravity it wasn't his flavor of the month. <laughs> By the 21st of November, even Cardinal Campeggio had heard of, in Rome of the sacred codex of the Bible perverted in the vernacular tongue and brought into the realm by perfidious followers of the abominable Lutheran sect. In the following February, the king stirred himself to declare, we with the deliberate advice of Thomas Lord Cardinal and other reverend fathers of the spirituality, have determined the said and untrue translations to be burned with further sharp correction and punishment against the keepers and readers of the same. In short, God and we forbade it. But in spite of the fish sellers, the torture, the death, the stake, the Bible spread. Thomas Garrett, the curate at All Hallows in Cheapside, carried 350 books, many of them Bibles, to Oxford in a few months. England was well behind Europe in printing. There were a thousand printers on the continent of Europe at a time when there were three in England, including Caxton. And by the English implacable opposition to the Bible in the common tongue. This is 1526, remember. Germany had their New Testament in 1466. France in 1474. Italy in 1471. Czech and Dutch in 1477. There was even a Spanish before 1500. But by the constitutions of Oxford, as I said earlier, anyone was forbidden to read the Bible in English. And even when later, to anticipate ourselves, Sir Thomas More was going to answer Tyndale, he had to get a bishop's license in order to have the privilege of reading this heretical depravity. And to tell you that it was for real, 
You'll understand when I say that in 1526 in Norwich, a boy of nine years old was burnt at the stake for possessing a piece of paper with written on it the Lord's Prayer in English. And in 1519, a woman and six men, all of them laborers, were burnt at the stake in Coventry for teaching their children the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer in English. These constitutions of Oxford meant what they said. In 15, by February 1526, we had the public burning of Luther's books uh, and uh, according in London, at St. Paul's Cross in London, uh, and according to the sermon from uh, Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester at the, de- at the time, he accused Luther of burning Christ because he burnt po- the Pope's bull written against him. And uh, he said that signifies, he, he was accusing Luther of, uh, of uh, burning Christians, I beg your pardon, because he had uh, burnt the, the Pope's bull. And he said that signifies that if Luther could have got hold of the Pope, he would have burnt him as well. Well, two years later, Tyndale knew this. And when he was writing one of his books, The Obedience of the Christian Man, he picked that up and reminded his readers of the fact that Fisher had made this statement, that he accused uh, um, Luther of uh, burning Christians because he had burnt the Pope's bull, signifying presumably that he would have burnt the Pope if he could have got hold of him, which was nonsense. But he says, all right, so the same thing signifies that they burnt the New Testament too, signifying they would have burnt Christ if they would have got hold of him. Tyndale was well able to use the pen. But now the hunt was on. By 1527, Henry had four agents scouring the continent for this man, Tyndale. The ambassador, John Hackett. The Cologne senator, Herman Rink. Two friars in civilian dress. In the same year, Archdeacon Wareham brought all available copies and burnt them. It was this strange idea that sufficient demand would throttle supply. In the event, of course, everybody was happy. The bishops had their Bibles to burn. The printer had his money, thank you. And even Tyndale had now enough money for another edition, which he improved on the first. William Tyndale, at the same time, was writing. In 1528, he wrote a book called the, or a tract as it was called in those days, called The Parable of the Wicked Mammon. You wouldn't guess it by the title, but it was actually a beautiful evangelistic tract on the, uh, on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, pleading all the time for the sinner to repent and turn to Christ, to lay aside this false idea that anybody can be saved by what the church does for you, or by penance, or by indulgence, but only by faith in Christ alone. And then in 1528, he wrote a book that is probably next to his New Testament in, in English, is the most notable of all his writings, The Obedience of the Christian Man, in which he set out to demonstrate that the reformers were not rebels against authority, but were good, law-abiding citizens who only wanted the freedom to worship God. There's a lovely story, of course, and there's a lot of truth behind it because we know one copy was owned by uh, Anne Boleyn, uh, that a copy was given to Anne Boleyn and uh, rather was, uh, yeah, well, was loaned to one of her courtiers 
and it found its way into the hands of one of the, uh, uh, the archbishop or the cardinal's men uh, and uh, eventually was rescued by Anne Boleyn who was so impressed by it that she took it to Henry VIII himself and he read it and at that time thought this is a good book because it was encouraging men to be obedient to all those in law over them including the king. On the death of Christ, in the obedience of the Christian man, he writes like this. Listen to this phrase and this turn of phrase. God sent him, that is Christ, into the world to bless us and to offer himself for us as a sacrifice of a sweet savor, to kill the stench of our sins, that God henceforth should smell them no more, nor think on them any more. By 1530, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, arrived in England. He was learning Hebrew, translating the Old Testament, revising the New Testament, writing long letters home, and constantly alert to the presence of the agents of the king. Persecution was increasing. There was an edict against Lutherans from Brussels. In 1531, in England, Bilney was burnt at Norwich in August, Richard Bayfield at, Smith, at Smithfield in December with a leather cell at Tewkesbury. Others, George Constantine, uh, recanted. It was a hard time. And at this very time, Sir Thomas More, who became the Chancellor of the King, picked up his pen and wrote against Tyndale. He must have done so purely for the honor of doing it. And it's perhaps the worst thing he ever did and shows him in the worst possible light. He began in June 1529 by writing a dialogue touching the pestilent sect of Lutheran Tyndale, 150 pages. In 1531, Tyndale responded with an answer unto Sir Thomas More's dialogue. In 1532, More came back with the confutation of Tyndale's answer to his dialogue. Something like three quarters of a million words Thomas More spent, compared with 80,000 words that Tyndale wrote in reply. But then Tyndale did have more important things on his mind. And during all this, the king had a change of mind. He began to realize that Tyndale's pen was powerful, and he needed a powerful pen. He had his own problems with the Pope, which we needn't go into now, but most of them were with domestic issues. Uh, and uh, he needed someone who might rally to his side. So he sent out Stephen Vaughan, his king's representative, who arrived in Antwerp, had no idea where Tyndale was, and sent letters to Frankfurt, Hamburg, and Marburg in the hopes that he might get a reply. He did, from Antwerp the city he was already in. Tyndale had his good contacts, even if the king didn't. There's a beautiful story, and it's true, of um, Tyndale meeting with Stephen Vaughan outside the city walls one dark night, and Stephen Vaughan telling him that the king was thinking favorably towards him and would like him to come home. And Tyndale said, if the king will allow just one verse of the Bible to go forth in English, I will come home and put myself at the king's mercy. But you didn't bargain with Henry, 
So the king changed his mind. He didn't want Tyndale after all. In fact, anything could happen to him. It didn't matter. In 1533, Tyndale says he looked out of his windows somewhere in the city and he saw John Tyson, a priest he knew well because he'd studied with him as a student. He recognized him because he was red-haired Tyson and he was in the city. What was he doing? He was Stokesley's agent. In 1524, Tyndale went into the home of the uh, English merchants in Antwerp. He st stayed in the home of Thomas Points, a merchant, an evangelical merchant, a lovely man who has actually been buried in Ockenden in Essex, and you have, there's a lovely plaque to him talking about his loyalty to the king, and the big debate is which king are they talking about, and his evangelical faith. At this time, it might be worth just having a glance at the character of William Tyndale. Sir Thomas More, his arch-enemy, and I could spend a whole lecture just talking about Moore and Tyndale in their correspondence together. Well, who couldn't with three-quarters of a million words that I haven't read uh, to, to dip into? But even Sir Thomas More said he was a man sober and honest, live, uh, uh, and honest living who looked and preached holily. He maintained that William Tyndale was reckoned by all who knew him as a man who was a goodly, godly man and whose sermons did good. Now that, from his archenemy, is high praise. Humphrey Monmouth, remember the man who he stayed with back in 1523 in London, the merchant who had contacts with the German Lutherans at the Stapelhof, the uh, German steel yard, says, and he was on trial at this time, Humphrey Monmouth was, for even having looked after him those years back. He says he lived like a good priest, he studied most part of the day and of the night at his book, and he would eat but boiled meat by his good will, no drink but small single beer. I never saw him wear linen about the space he was with me. Thomas points, ten years after Tyndale had suffered and been martyred, uh, could write of him, he was a man without any spot or blemish, so that no man living was able to reprove him of any sin or crime, and the Roman Catholic chaplain of the, uh, the English merchant's house in Antwerp, John Rogers, was converted through the preaching of William Tyndale. He'll come back into the story in just a moment. Tyndale gave himself two days of pastime each week, Monday and Saturday. He spent Monday visiting the English exiles in the city and encouraging them, and he spent Saturday poking around the nooks and crannies and the hovels of the city and trying to bring a little relief to the lepers and the poor and the suffering. Don't you think he might have thought he had better things to do? That's the mark of the man we're dealing with, a man of consistent Christianity. And for the man who, when his turn came, stood unflinchingly for the truth, he had a wonderful pastor's heart for those who faced with the burning flames couldn't face it and they carried their faggot, as it was called, and threw it on the fire with a Bible. If any man, he wrote letters home, clean against his heart but overcome with the weakness of flesh, for fear of persecution, have denied as Peter did or have delivered his book, throw it on the fire, or put it away secretly, let him, if he repent, come again and take better hold and not despair 
or take it for a sign that God hath forsaken him. For God oftentimes takes his strength away from even his elect, when they either trust in their own strength or are negligent to call to him for his strength. And that doth he to teach them and to make them feel that in the fire of tribulation, for his word's sake, nothing can endure and abide save his work, and that strength only which he hath promised, for the which strength he will have us to pray unto him night and day with all instance. Early in the summer of 1535, Henry Phillips, a tall, gangling no-good, arrived among the English merchants in Antwerp. He waited until Thomas Points was away. He was a personable, easy-going, suave, debonair kind of guy. And I took his occasion. On the 21st of May, 1535, he invited Tyndale to lunch. He had laid an ambush in one of these such alleys in the city of, of Antwerp. He was captured and taken to the grim castle of Vilvord, six miles north of Brussels. It was modeled on the Bastille. Tyndale was imprisoned for one year, 135 days. We even know how much it cost, 407 pounds, nine shillings and sixpence to keep him there. In his defense, he made a clear statement of justification by faith. The authority of the scripture he was excommunicated. He was handed over to the state. The church could honestly say it never burnt anyone. It didn't need to. It simply handed them over to the state and told the state to burn them for him. I want to read you the only copy we have of the handwriting of Tyndale. This is a letter he wrote while he was in prison. It is addressed to the governor of the prison, the Marquis of Bergen, and it's a beautiful letter. It's written in Latin. It's the only handwriting we have of his and the only letter so far that has, uh, has survived. But you'll hear some rings in it. You'll hear here no pleading for freedom, no asking for mercy. You'll hear him asking for some practical things, rather like the Apostle Paul did in one of his letters. And then you'll hear him pleading for the very tools of his trade that brought him into prison in the first place so that he could go on with his translation. Listen to him. I believe, right worshipful, that you are not unaware of what may have been determined concerning me. Wherefore, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from the cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I also have with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He also has warmer nightcaps. And, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. 
in return, and notice the evangelistic thrust right at the end, in return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God, to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. W. Tindalos. If you can listen to that being read, without being moved, you have a heart of stone. In October 1536, he was taken out into the market square at Vilvord and strangled. Not being a lapsed heretic, he had the privilege of being throttled before his body was burned. And then his body was burned to ashes. It is said that his last prayer at the stake was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. This very year, 1536, two Bibles were circulating in England. One was by Miles Coverdale, and the other was called Matthew's Bible. It was actually John Rogers' Bible, remember? The converted chaplain at the Antwerp merchant's home, converted by the preaching of Tyndale. Both were Tyndale's virtually unaltered. Tyndale's name, for obvious reasons, was not there. Henry cast his eyes over them, looked to his clerics, were these heretical books? They had to admit they weren't. If there be no heresies, roared the king, in God's name let it go abroad among the people. That was Coverdale's Bible. In 1537, Matthew's Bible went out into the nation with this telling phrase in the front, set forth with the king's most gracious license. In September 1538, two years after Tyndale's martyrdom, the king ordered that one book of the whole Bible of the largest volume in English should be displayed in every parish church in the country. In 1539, Parliament had to issue an order forbidding people to read the Bible while divine service was going on, because while the priest was doing his mumbo-jumbo at the front, the people were at the back listening to somebody read the Bible to them. But what I love above all, when you remember his desire right at the beginning, back in 1521, in the little sobry manor, the great hall there, when he stood up and said, if God spare my life ere many years, I will ensure that the boy who drives the plow will know more of God's word than thou dost. Well, listen, in the year of his martyrdom, 1536, Bishop Fox of Hereford, was grumbling, the lay people do know the Holy Scriptures better than many of us. To which we can only say, thank God. Amen. If you're down at the embankment by the River Thames, you can look out for William Tyndale standing there on his plinth, tucked away, typical of the man. But his influence has been enormous. Professor David Daniel, who is uh, retired from University College London, one of the foremost, world-foremost scholars of Shakespeare, has written a superb biography of William Tyndale. And he maintains quite clearly that Tyndale shaped our language more than Shakespeare ever did.
and it would be hard to argue with him because he is a Shakespearean scholar of world note. He is also chairman uh, of the Tyndale Society and if any of you are interested, I've put the details there for you to uh, consider joining this society and getting uh, good information about the Tyndale Society and the ongoing development of research into Tyndale for some time. Let me close just with this. Tyndale as an original thinker and an innovator. To study languages as diligently as he did, why did he trouble with Hebrew? Even the pious John Dean Collett gave up Greek, as I say, because it was too hard. A man so totally focused. To translate the Bible into English. True, Wycliffe had done it, but there was no evidence that he ever had the co uh, copy, and Wycliffe and his team were only translating from the Vulgate. They had nothing else to go by. He was too humble to admit, not to admit that he'd had Wycliffe if he'd had it. And he says... All things serious and official were in Latin, and the Bible needed to be in English. To translate the Bible into commonplace English. As I've said, the authorized version was, so far as it went, a retrograde step when it retranslated some of Tyndale's good words. To see the need for the Bible to be necessary with a thousand years of church history against you. Don't you think he ever thought, William, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Oh, and I didn't tell you that on one occasion he was shipwrecked and lost all his manuscripts. I would have said, I didn't keep a backup copy, Lord. I did my best. I'll go and do something else for a living. But he started again and redid it all over again. This man learned to keep the big issue as the big issue. He wrote to John Frith when John Frith was in prison for his faith and urged him, I think, very wisely. John, don't argue about the Lord's table. That's not the big issue. The big issue is justification by faith. His letter arrived too late. John Frith had already committed himself to the debate on the Lord's table and for that he died. But Tyndale was a man who always had the big vision in view. And we owe him an incredible debt of gratitude and his God, a deep thankfulness that we have the word of God ourselves. John, I'll leave you to take us on from there. The more simple, the better.
Why did Henry change his mind, the king? Presumably you mean why did he change his mind about using no. Tyndale? Yes. The moment Tyndale started to try and bargain with the king, you know, I'll come home providing you didn't talk to Henry like that. We speak and that will be it. So he wasn't going to be bargained with a cheap priest abroad and so he went off the idea. I'm sorry. Ah. Ah, sorry, I beg your pardon, I, I misunderstood your question, that's a good point. Well, things had begun to move on a little from there, but remember the... Yeah, sorry? Uh, well, of course one could enter in a long debate about um, Queen Anne Boleyn, um, but, but Queen Anne Boleyn had actually been um, executed before um, Tyndale's martyrdom. And, but there is no doubt that she had a big influence upon Henry. Um, she may have been the only one of his wives he really loved, but that's another issue. Uh, and uh, things were changing in that now the Bible was unstoppable. And there is always the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. You know, the Bible was there. It was de facto now. And so I, I think that part of the explanation is simply that the Bible was there. Also, of course, that, that the king had now virtually broken with, with Rome. He'd, he'd thrown out the landlord and pocketed the rent, and he, he wasn't really going to be under the Pope's authority. And by accepting the Bible, he might have uh, thought that this was his, his one way of, of, of sort of kicking against the Pope, which was odd, of course, because I've said there were, there were vernacular Bibles across Europe anyway. Um, but, but the whole climate was beginning to shift, and... One can only see the hand of God in this. May I just take the opportunity of saying, I'd, I'd like to mention David Daniels' um, biography. This is a superb biography of Tinder by Professor David Daniel. And if you're prepared to get into uh, the, the real heart of, of the whole issue, he, he deals, for example, with the, the debate between Moore and, and Tyndale in, in some detail. Uh, and it is really a very good, well-researched and fine uh, biography. So I would commend that. It, it, it used to be nearly 20 pounds in hardback, and this is um, 8 99 I mean, it's a giveaway at that price. And then, uh, if you want to read the 1534 translation, uh, which is the upgrade version of 1526, uh, then this is available, and, and this is... Uh, somebody shout out the price. Nobody shout out the price. It's... Sorry? Yes, a bit more expensive. I think it's something like 1099. But to be able to read the new... Now, do remember, you don't have chapters and verses here. In, well, you don't have verses here in the way that we have. I'm just thumbing through to make sure they haven't put them in. No, they haven't. Um, because at that time, there were no verses. They came about a century later, uh, the breaking up of the Bible into verses. Uh, and uh, so, you, you know, you have to hunt around for the verse you want. But uh, tremendous to read this. And therefore, these make a, a very good duo together. How uniform was the English language itself in those days? I mean, would the boy behind the plough be talking the same English as Tyndale? And would the boy in Essex be talking the same language as Northumberland? 
Well, the answer, I mean, we don't thoroughly know the answer to that question, and let me hasten to say I'm not an expert. I, I wish David Daniel were here. He'd give you a much better answer than I can on that. But clearly there was a commonality of English, just as there is today, um, because when Tyndale was translating uh, his, uh, his New Testament, it, it was shipped into Scotland and it was shipped into Wales and it was shipped into England. And there was no question that people could understand it. Though in some parts there would be very heavy dialects. And, and look, if I had the um, facsimile of the 1526 here, you would find it almost impossible to read it because it isn't difficult. And, and in fact, John would have found it very difficult to read. They've, this is a modernized version by um, David Daniel. He's, he's brought the words up to date for us. Um, but it's actually lovely to read it as it's written, because remember in those days pe people did write, I mean you can tell how people pronounced it because it, it was phonetically written uh, and, and because there was no real spelling so as you pronounced it you wrote it. So yes there was a commonality, it wasn't as though there, was, there, there were different, almost different languages, I mean there were different languages because Gaelic and so on was around but um, I, I think uh, the very fact that the New Testament spread abroad and, and the fact that his, his English was simple and a point he made was that, I, I mean, one of his, Moore used to say that uh, you can't translate uh, the Greek and the Hebrew into English. And actually, Tyndale said, and, and uh, uh, linguists tell us it's absolutely true, that, that Greek and Hebrew translate better into English than in Latin. And Tyndale made that point. He said they translate better into English than into Latin. Since Tyndale's translation was so beautiful and, and so excellent, why did they then decide later to change it into the King James Version? Well, very simply because you now have to go to the politics of the day. Um, there was now beginning a backlash in favor of Catholicism again. And of course, the seesaw in British uh, monarchy history and political history um, backwards and forwards to who was ultimately going to win um, continued and uh, and so uh, you had the you had the strong Protestant and um, uh, emphasis in the time of Edward but Edward didn't last very long of course uh, and when he died his sister Mary Bloody Mary as she is known where there were hundreds of Protestant martyrs uh, that was the strong backlash and it, it was a long time, it wasn't really until the time of William uh, in the, the, the Great Revolution, the, the, the revolution almost without shots, that, that the Protestant faith was established firmly. So there was a swing back in the time of the Stuarts to Catholicism, and that's the reason. James I. I'm just interested to know um, what the, the ordinary man was keen to read this Bible, uh, even though there was a threat of death hanging over his head for doing so. Was that because there was a genuine spiritual hunger or was it because the book was banned? And if so, do you think it might be a useful idea to forbid the reading <laughs> the of Scripture today? <laughs> yes. Excellent. Well, I would suggest there's a little bit of both there. Um, I'm sure forbidden fruit is sweet and you know, you tell people you mustn't read this and that's the best way to make them read it. But let me illustrate it to you this way. During the time of uh, tin, uh, William, J sorry, 
John Wycliffe's translation, which, of course, was 110, 20 years before Tyndale. There was a remarkable movement of God, no question about it. The Lollards went out with their big Bibles in the, the British Library. You may have seen copies in the British Library, and they are big. Uh, and, of course, many died then. But there is no doubt at all that there was a real spiritual move across Europe, uh, across uh, England. And the evidence of that is that in one of his grumbling stages, Sir Thomas More once said, and this, remember, is over a century after, William, after John Wycliffe, he said, you can't meet two men on the road of England without one of them being a Wycliffeite. Now, allowing for a little bit of hyperbole because he was in a, in a strop about it, nevertheless, if that, was, if that told you something, if, if half the population were Wycliffeites, there was a grassroots work of God going on. And I believe in those days, of course, people weren't writing their memoirs. The man who drove the plow wasn't writing his story. So we don't have the, the lovely stories of, of what God was doing among ordinary people in the way that you do two centuries later where everybody was writing their diary and everybody was reading everybody else's diary. But uh, I, I'm sure there was a powerful work of revival in England. And that was, I believe, uh, John Wycliffe laid the foundation with his Bible so the nation was ready Already people had had a flavor of freedom of reading and, or hearing read the Bible. And you know the famous picture of, uh, of them reading uh, Wycliffe's Bible in the woods with people looking by the trees to, to make sure they weren't discovered. I think that was very widespread. And I think Thomas More gives us a clue to that in his rather grumbly comment. There's a gentleman over there. Thank you, Mr. Byrne. I, I like the speaker's reference to the bird table. Did he know that you're a noted ornithologist, uh, Chen? Um, no, but I was able to watch the pictures from underneath the bird table. Excellent. But I'm very pleased to hear it because though I'm not an ornithologist, I'm a very keen bird watcher. <laughs> <laughs> was that a question? No, no. <laughs> I said I'd call you Mr. Byrne today. So. Um, bearing in mind the uh, decline in knowledge of the Bible in, in our society now and lack of attendance at church and so on, what do you think William Tyndale would be urging us as biblical Christians to be doing? I think I know what he would be doing. He'd be doing just what he was doing then. He would be writing because he knew the pen was very powerful and, uh, and, and he was writing these very influential letters. So he'd be writing the equivalent of modern-day tracts or books to, to, to make the case. He would go on preaching because that's clearly what he was doing in a very powerful way. And I, I think he would be, because his obedience of the Christian man is, uh, it's quite a long tract. I mean, it's what we would call a book. And it, there's a lot more in it than just saying Christians should obey the king. He deals with the whole realm of, uh, of life. He talks about family life. He talks about relationships of servants and masters. He talks about the landlord and how he should behave. Yes, he talks about the king and he talks about magistrates and judges. In other words, he applies scripture 
to every part of life. And in one sense, that's the appropriateness of this lecture being in the auspices of the Christian Institute because the, the Christian Institute is nothing if it is not seeking to take Scripture as the foundation and saying, this is what God says. And this man was committed to the fact that this is what God says. And in one sense, our encouragement is that in a different way and for different reasons, we are in very similar situations, as you've wisely pointed out. Uh, in his day, the average pe person was wholly ignorant of the Word of God, in, in spite of what I've said, uh, because everything that was done in church was in Latin, everything bar nothing. And, of course, the boy who drove the plough had no clue what was going on. Uh, and Tyndale was concerned to say, but this is God's Word. Now, I actually think in many ways we're in a harder situation spiritually than he was because I believe as I've illustrated there was a readiness a preparation I think England was beginning to move up um, from the dark ages but we're moving down I don't know quite what from but we are moving down a bit of a waffle answer to a very intelligent question I'm afraid maybe you can answer your own question better are you volunteering to do that? <laughs> no? Okay. Mr. McNichol. What was the reason for Tyndall going to the continent and staying there? I didn't get that quite clear. He had tried, of course, to get a... What he went to London for, and perhaps I didn't make it altogether clear, was to get a, a position in, in Bishop Tunstall's household to translate the Bible. He had actually done a translation of Isocrates from the Greek, which, by all accounts, was a superb translation. And Isocrates is particularly hard to translate. And he had done an excellent translation, which was recognized. So he marked himself out. Now, if he hadn't gone down the route of Bible translation, he could have been a renowned scholar, no question. Because, well, I've illustrated that already. But it, he had one purpose, and that was to translate the Bible. Now, having applied to... Uh, Tunstall, and having been turned down, he knew there was nowhere in England that he could go safely to translate the Bible, and he would be found in England. There was some value in going to the continent, because there were reformers on the continent. Um, he went, as I suggested, he went to Wittenberg, uh, Luther's town and uh, city, and, and there would have been, I mean, he didn't stay there, but I mean, there would have been contacts there. And so there was more security on the, con on the continent than there was in England. He could hide on the continent. It would have been very difficult for him to hide in England. Once he made this statement at the, at the table in Little Sobbery Manor, he was a marked man. You'll notice he left almost immediately. Now, Sir John and Lady Walsh, I think, were probably evangelicals, certainly in their hearts, if not openly. Although Sir John Walsh was one of the king's champions and attended him at his... Uh, I was going to say his his, yes, at his coronation. Yes, that's right, it was his coronation. Yes, I, I nearly said his wedding, and then I thought you'd say which one, but I... Um, uh, so, and, but they were strong supporters of Tyndale. They gave him letters of introduction in London, but he was too hot for even them to handle. He was a marked man. I'm, I'm slightly kind of unclear of what you were saying earlier on about... Um, Tyndale's translation, was he, his main concern that it, would be, that it would be as accurate and strictly accurate? Or, would it, or was he more concerned about com, um, conveying the actual meaning? And if so, what relevance does that have for us today when people talk about having a, a translation of the Bible which people can understand and which is 
easy for the man on the street to understand, yes. especially in, in the light of the argument about the authorised no, it's, it's a very perceptive question. Thank you. Uh, there is no doubt that he was concerned to be accurate. He makes that clear. But he was equally concerned to be understood. And the way I juxtapose those two in this is this. When it came to the Old Testament, um, the study of Hebrew was, was far less advanced then than it is now. And there were a number of words in the Old Testament that, frankly, he didn't know the meaning of. I mean, the obvious one is the word scapegoat. The Hebrew is Azazel, and he, he didn't know what it meant. Actually, we're still not sure what it means. So he made up a word, and he called it the scapegoat. And, of course, that's come right into the English language, and everybody knows what the scapegoat is. But that's his word. And so sometimes he was forced to make up a word. Now, the book of Job, I'm not a Hebrew scholar either, but I do know that the book of Job is not, a, is, is not one of the easiest books uh, to, to, to study from the, from the Hebrew because there are a lot of phrases and words that were difficult. Now, he made sense of them even if he wasn't sure what the translation was. That's what I meant when I said sometimes he wouldn't necessarily be wholly accurate. What the authorized version did when it came to the book of Job is sometimes make nonsense of it because he didn't understand it. Now, look, I'm not doing a polemic against the AV. I'm just trying to give you facts, uh, and this is a fact. Uh, and so Tyndale in that situation would say, well, it's, it's better to actually make it say something. Uh, you know, it's like when... Um, the Queen of Sheba came and, and, and we read about the peacocks and ivory. Well, we're actually not sure what the peacocks and ivory were. Uh, but, so he made them peacocks and ivory because they had to mean something. And so that's what I meant. He wanted it to make sense. And he was very earthy. Uh, he, uh, my mind's trying to grab some illustrations of his earthiness in translation. Uh, but uh, they're just not coming to me at the moment. But he, he really tried to make things very... Uh, he used the English that people were using, not... Um, you know when the, when the New English Bible first came out, it was the, the Bishop's Bible, and it, it, was, it just had all typical words that bishops would use. And I went through it once and marked all the words that I knew the members of my congregation wouldn't be using in day-to-day -day language. You can never accuse that of Tyndale. All the words he uses are words that people would be using. So, yes, he was concerned for accuracy, never to twist scripture, never to misunderstand scripture. He didn't always get it right, because he was on his own. Uh, well, he did have some helpers, but they were, he wasn't a very good judge of men, and they were normally worse than useless to him. But um, pretty much he was on his own. Uh, and uh, he didn't have the backup of, of Luther. I mean, Luther and Melanchthon used to talk about, they'd spend a whole afternoon poring over the, 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 the meaning of one particular Hebrew form. Well, Tyndale didn't have that privilege. He had to bat it around himself. I hope that makes clear. He was concerned for accuracy, but he was concerned for intelligibility. 